Good morning. Morning. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Saturday. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you in all its splendor, It's all, in all its commemorative honor, everyone. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour. And as always of a Saturday, we are privileged to work alongside an outstanding producer, a fine young man by the name of Nathan Miller, though we've nicknamed him Nathan Detroit. Nathan Detroit. That's me. Yes, that's right. (laughs) As good of a producer as I am, I did not have that button pulled up to play it. Soon to be Nathan. Nathan Cincinnati, everybody. Nathan Nathan, Kentucky. That's right. In a few uh, months, actually. (laughs) I'm sorry, what'd you say? Oh, in a couple months, actually, I will be Nathan Cincinnati. When I take oh, a trip out there. Really? Yeah. Very good. I've never been to the Riverfront City, also known as the Queen City. I'm not sure of the derivation there. Seattle itself was known as the Queen City for a while. And here we are. We're in Sarasota. Our listeners are primarily in and around Puget Sound, though we'd love to be available on 1150kknw.com and in podcast form, thanks to the editing skills of the aforementioned Nathan Miller. Today, oh, thank you, Gary. <laughs> well, you're quite welcome. I like tossing compliments like they're nickel candy. I mean, that's just what I do. Kind of my thing. It's my jam. Especially <laughs> when they're deserved. <laughs> Not your jelly. Not your flattery. That's right. <laughs> Any plans for Memorial Day weekend, Nathan, that you uh, can share? Just planning to go east into the mountains and play a little disc golf after I get off of work here. Oh, oh okay. Oh. Yeah, nice time I've to go up to close to TV. Snoqualmie and North Bend. Yeah. Nice. Very nice area. Very we, nice. Um, there's yeah. so Especially this time on. of year. In Western Washington, people have planned their unique. Each town has its own way of commemorating Memorial Day. And in and around Seattle, there's plenty to go and see. And some people have more personal reasons than others, but it's always a good use of your time this weekend to go and remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice for the rest of us in times of war. Yesterday on American Road Trip Talk, another show that I host here on 1150 AM, I excuse my bad arithmetic, Nathan, I said that I'd been to Pearl Harbor three times, actually four. Mm. I've made four trips to Hawaii. This was back in the early 90s. And I always told myself I'm not leaving for the mainland without visiting Pearl Harbor. Twice I was actually able to go on to the memorial onto that wonderful superstructure, which is both mournful and hopeful and triumphant, ultimately. Unbelievable experiences. Why only two times? Because they get long lines. And once it was on a December 7th, and when I went there, oh, the crowds. And that's the joy of it, to see that that many people want to be there to honor our war dead and to remember that pivotal event in American history. If anyone, if you haven't been to Hawaii and you're planning to go there, please avail yourself of the privilege and the opportunity to visit the Pearl Harbor itself, of course, but especially the USS Arizona Memorial. It is an extraordinary feat of, of love and remembrance and patriotism, and it just makes your heart swell with pride to be an American. So that's my PSA for Pearl Harbor. And uh, today, 
but we're back on the mainland. And thanks to the good graces and the fine writing ability and research skills of Harriet Baskus, who's getting to be a bit of a regular on Manson Mitchell, we are going to talk about some of the 111 places in Seattle that you must not miss. It's a wonderful book. It's beautifully written and lushly photographed. Harriet Vasquez is an author and journalist who has produced radio documentaries on everything from early cowgirls to offbeat museums and written eight books about unusual attractions, hidden museum treasures, and airports around the world. She served as the general manager of three community radio stations in the Pacific Northwest and now reports on travel and the arts for a variety of national outlets and for her blog, stuckattheairport.com. We also talked to her about that book, Stuck at the Airport, when we had her on for the first time four years ago. And we are pleased to have her back once again so that we can cover at least 110 of these 111 places in Seattle. That's our goal for today. (laughs) Welcome back, Harriet. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much. So um, before we talk about Seattle, um, let's talk about Memorial Day. I just got to visit the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Um, It started as the D-Day Museum, very small. And I wrote about it when it started. And until I went to visit it, I didn't quite get how big it was. It has expanded over the years and has many different buildings in it and probably is very um, busy this weekend. You're right. People go on the important uh, days, the historic days. So they just keep adding. I went to visit a section of the museum that is going to open in about a year that talks about um, going into the camps and um, at the end of the war and saving people that were in the concentration camps and so they just have so much stuff there and I got to go into the back room and see some of the things that are just coming out for that exhibit so it's fun. Fascinating and I hope we'll have an opportunity to talk to you about that another time. Our focus today is on the places in Seattle that are unusual, uh, different, interesting and it seems to me Harriet from the little conversation that we've had that you do a fair amount of traveling outside Seattle. Is that part of your job? Yes, I really try because, as you said, I, I do a blog called Stuck at the Airport. So I love to go to any place that will bring me to a new airport. So I just I just went to Frankfurt a couple of weeks ago um, as part of the an, uh, inaugural Condor Airlines. She started flying from Seattle on new planes that are all stripey. They look like those old gum, the zebra gum, the gum that used to have the zebra as the mascot. Um, yeah. So the, the, they're very stripy and they're inside, they're all new planes. And, um, but mostly I said yes for that trip because I wanted to see the Frankfurt airport. So yes, I do try. And next week I'm going to um, Istanbul because the organization that all the airlines are a member of, IATA, has their general meeting in a different city every year. And this year it's in Istanbul, hosted by Turkish Airlines. So I'm going to go there. And I love that airport. It's giant. And they've got a spa that's open 24 hours and lots. And a, I think a, um, I don't know, well, like award-winning restaurants that are all, also in that airport. So I'm looking forward I, to it. I know, you as, I know you as a journalist and a writer, but are you also a travel agent? Or is this traveling <laughs> just just for your own pleasure? No, it's just in the in the service of being able to report on things. So I'm not an agent. Though somebody keeps, I keep getting um, 
because I write about the Seattle airport a lot and they still sell one of the big sellers at the airport is the sleepless in Seattle t-shirt or, or night shirt rather. Right. And that movie is pretty old right now, but they still sell it. And every once in a while I do an update on how much it costs to buy that shirt. I think it's like $39 now or something. And then Every every time I do that, some people try to order it from me. I should be an agent for that teacher. That shirt. <laughs> <Get a commission. laughs> and while we're on this subject, I'm curious enough because I can't even tell you the last time I was at SeaTac Airport, and I always loved it. I thought it was it was large enough for my needs, and I got through easily. I never had a bad experience there. You follow the fish on the ground. Follow the fish right. on the ground. There's fish in the on the. Yes, in one of the concourses. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's, a, that's art in one of the concourses. Exactly. So in the last 10, 15 years, then, Harriet, what have you been doing at, uh, what does the Port of Seattle Authority have in mind for SeaTac Airport? What does it look like today? Well, they've done, I, I don't want to say a total overhaul, but it, it looks very different from probably what you saw at last. The whole center area um, was being um, worked on all through the pandemic. It was kind of um, locked off. And there's a giant like wall of windows that looks over the airfield there, which we couldn't see for a while. So that's all open. Um, this, there used to be an Anthony's and in the center of the airport. You probably remember that. That was the one main restaurant. It also looked out over the airfield. That was closed. And now we have Salty's. That air, that uh, Anthony's and probably Salty's will be, become the next one was advertised as the one the airport restaurant that took in the most money every year. And I know there's rest, fancy restaurants at other airports, but I think it's because this was the only major fancy restaurant. So we've got that. We also, they also redid, if you ever came to Seattle home from an international flight, it wasn't really a wonderful welcome. The facility was not really lovely. And they just redid the international arrivals area and you come in over the, uh, the longest bridge, uh, pedestrian bridge over an active taxiway. So you come in and you see not only the airport grounds, but you see all around Seattle from this glass pedestrian bridge that brings you into the main terminal. So that I love that. In fact, the first time I came in on that, I, I kind of got a little choked up because it was so lovely and it was so welcoming. Are there Those any, things I like. Are, are there any fish on the bridge? <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> I like but you get to see some mountains. Ground. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that, those are artists who have work at other airports, so people should look around. And if you do come to Seattle, I forget it might be the Sea Conquerors. I'm not quite sure, but if you look at the fish, there's one or two fish that hold are holding a suitcase. So you have to kind of oh, look for that. Kids always find that. it. Yeah. So there's more art. Um, the, the art has been kind of cleaned up and moved around. The shops are just getting really nice. There's, um, yeah, this is a sea concourse. They're, they just opened a kiosk for, there's a new thing called mushroom coffee that's going around. It's very popular in some circles right now. And we've got a company here and you could taste mushroom coffee, which is supposed to be like good for your brain. And then right across the way is Seattle Chocolate, also in the book, their um, factory is down the road um, and they give out samples. So I've been telling people, go get a sample of mushroom coffee and a sample of the Seattle chocolate. And it's a good way to start your trip. 
I think we talked about Seattle chocolate last time you were on because that's one of the places that Gary and I have been. Okay. We've been to Seattle chocolates. We've sampled the free ones and and we've bought a lot of chocolates. Yeah. Over well, today on factory. Saturdays they sell the uh, the seconds for um, ten dollars a bag. So we often go on Saturdays. Ah, and a great variety of flavors too. You want a buzz? Get the espresso. The yes. Seattle espresso chocolate. Yes. That's hip and happening, folks. <laughs> Harriet, one other question before we get to these places in Seattle. Have you been to all 50 states? Um, I don't think I have. There's a lot of people who are going to keep lists and, and put yeah. um, pins in a, in a map. I don't right. do that. But I realize um, I just got invited to go to Arkansas. And I think I don't think I've been to Arkansas. So. Most okay. I've been to most other places because I used to travel around to weird museums and often they were in all the states and especially right. the south. Right. I love that. Weird museums. Have you? Airports. No, we haven't. And I did start to keep a list of the places we've gone. Now that we live in Florida, we've covered a lot of the East Coast. And when we were um, in Seattle, more of the West Coast. But of course... In the West Coast, the states are huge. On the East Coast, they're little, and you can get to a lot of them. <laughs> exactly, yeah. We have been to Arkansas. We stayed we, overnight, 72 miles from Memphis, because we were on our way to Graceland. Yeah. There. So yeah. we stayed the night there and met some nice people. And then the next day, we had the Elvis experience, which I never thought I would do. I actually, it's not that I didn't want to do it. I'd be happy to do it. I just didn't see myself being there and availing myself. But when you're 72 miles away, come on, you got to go see Elvis and yes. Graceland. Unbelievable. Have you ever been? No, I've never been. But I have seen the Elvis movie filmed at the Seattle World's Fair several yes, times. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I've always wondered who got that car because it's oh, like yeah. the car of the future there. It features, and I think he's even singing during that scene. But that one car looks so futuristic. I thought somebody had to make off with that thing. I bet we can Google that and find it. But I did meet a woman who was an extra in that movie. And oh. many years later, she still had her paycheck. She never cashed it because Elvis had signed it. Sure. So, oh, my gosh. Oh, my That's gosh. the only paper she had when she came across him, I guess. So she never. <laughs> probably much <laughs> more valuable it. than what she got paid. Here's yeah. a little Las Vegas secret. And Elvis spent his share of time there, too. But in Las Vegas, don't know what Elvis did, but Dean Martin used to pay for his meals with the check. And more often than not, far more often than not, they never got cashed because they would put it in a frame. Dean Martin ate here. Here's his autograph. So there's a free meal. And that was a circuitous way of getting it. But the owners of the restaurant didn't mind. Dean Martin yes. ate here. Perfect. Very smart. <laughs> Very savvy. Yeah. All right. Let's get to Seattle. This is Memorial Day weekend. Maybe you're thinking, I'd like to see some new place I haven't seen before, go someplace I haven't gone before. There were so many places that really intrigued me. It's also the start of the summer season. And one of my favorite pastimes in the summer is swimming. You've got number 15 in your book, The Coleman Pool. I never knew that that pool existed but it's fascinating for a couple of reasons. And one is it's heated. It's heated and it's salt water. 
which yes. is the only one in Seattle, and it's outdoors. I think there's only two outdoor public pools in Seattle. So it's it's got um, a lot of fans for a lot of reasons. So yeah, um, I've never... I've never gone swimming there, but I know people who do. So it's in um, West Seattle and it's, it's in Lincoln park, which is a popular park and, it, and it's on the water there. And um, so here's what I learned about it. So, um, so in, they made it in 1925. It used to be just kind of like a, um, a dirt filled, like a tidal pool. And then, um, and then at high tide, it would fill up. There was like a sluice. Like a, they would open and close um, this door, underwater door, and they would fill up this this pool area with salt water. And then in the early 40s, they turned it into a, um, a real Olympic sized swimming pool. And I couldn't figure out or didn't understand like how they would keep make the water salt water. But every year at the beginning of the year, like April or at the beginning of the swimming season, they open up also these gates. And they fill up the swimming pool with salt water from from the um, sound there. And then they heat it up. And that's the water that people swim in all summer. They, they kind of um, replenish it when the water evaporates a little. But that water is kept in there all summer. And so it's salt water. And so if you, you're a little buoyant in there. And the cool thing is there's from, I don't know if you're in the pool, you can see it. But if you're around the pool, there's a glass wall and you can just see out, you see everything. You see the mountains, you see the whales going by. It's just this kind of very wonderful, unique thing that's in Seattle, in West Seattle, and people really love it. When I lived in Seattle, I would swim in the summertime at the pool where Gary and I were living and it was cold. It took me five or 10 minutes to get into the water fully before I could start swimming because it was really cold. And I was reading in uh, Coleman pool that it's kept at 84 degrees year round. Yes. That's warm. Yeah. That's, so that's what our water is here in, in summer in uh, Florida is 84 degrees. But remember so many days in summer here, the outside air is much colder. Yes. So it feels nice to be in there. Yeah. yeah. I'm always surprised when I see people going into the, off the beaches here, and it's like some people are wearing uh, wetsuits, but a lot of people go in no matter how cold it is. So, yeah, so that's why there's so many reasons why it's so unusual and so popular. Um, but one of the things I loved about it, and I, um, and I, let's see if I can find it. Um, oh, let's see. So, they, when they opened it, they had like water, ba- water ballerinas performing there. So, I just really love that they really celebrated it when they opened it. Um, on July 4th, 1941. So we're kind of coming up to an anniversary for it. I, I saw that. And, and and again, you know, Memorial Weekend is the unofficial start of summer. You get to wear white after Memorial Day. And, <laughs> right. and you know, if you feel like you want to swim on this holiday and get a good start on, on summer and on your summer tan, you know, what better than to go out to Coleman Pool where the water's warm? I thought yeah, that was really exactly. great. A really great place to recommend. And parenthetically, who came up with this idea that you don't wear white after Labor Day? <laughs> that, that is not our discussion uh, today. It's not, maybe there's a, <laughs> I, they need to open a place in Seattle where somebody's in a booth who can explain that because I just don't get, 
what would it matter to you whether I wear white and it happens to be, you know, February or something? So do you think that you're going to go snow blind because I'm in a white shirt and slacks and you're going to run me over? What is it practical? But it seems to be a fashion statement. And then I find out from Suzanne Mitchell over here that there is such a thing as winter white. Oh, yes. Yes. Winter white. White white wolves for winter. Winter white. All very sophisticated. All, all extremely sophisticated. Now, speaking of sophisticated, let's talk about um, planes, trains, and automobiles, and boats. Um, I was interested in what you had to say about Boeing Field, number eight of the 111 places in Seattle you must not miss. And part of what interested me was the artwork. Yes. Um, so it was Seattle's first airport. So it's small, but it's very... It's very busy because uh, a lot of the um, private jets come in and out of there and small planes going in and out of there. And it's right across the airfield, I guess, from uh, the Museum of Flight. So if you're at the Museum of Flight, you can see what's happening in, on Boeing Field. But the airport itself, it was, um, it was built in the late 1940s. Um, and it was named for, guess who? William Boeing. <laughs> Um, who, and his company, Boeing, was like right there on Boeing Field. So that's why they've named it that. But inside the airport, they've renovated it. It's kind of Art Deco-ish. Um, and inside, when they re renovated it, they filled it with art, commissioned art, and art from the city's art collection, all that's aviation related. So if you, and you can, it's public, it's open to the public. So you can go in there and really have this kind of surprising art tour. And there's two things that I loved when I went in and they're right at the front. So you don't want to like go in um, and upstairs where there's um, historic pictures. If you, when you walk into the front door, there's a like blue terracotta flooring. That's really like the, all the universe. Um, you take a trip from, um, from outer space to the moon by walking across the floor. And then in the entryway, if you look up, there's an artist who's taken 30,000 one foot rulers, you know, those wooden rulers that we that we had when we went to school. He got 30,000 of them and he told me it was hard to source them because they don't make these wooden rulers so much anymore. So he got um, 30,000 of them, which represents how tall you would fly, how high you would fly when you're on an airplane. And he made them into art that goes up the side of the entryway. Um, and at the top, at 30,000 feet, there's a photograph that looks like what you would see out of the airplane at 30,000 feet. But then at a lower level, for people who are flying in smaller planes, you would see there's a photo of what you would see kind of closer to the earth, the trees and things like that that you would see. So they really um, made it very aviation related. So I love that. And then every corner has um, a just a photograph or a piece of, of art, a piece of sculpture or painting um, in all the little corners. And then outside of that building, there's a little observation area where you can watch all the planes take off. So it's really kind of this, this sweet surprise for people who don't, who haven't been there. Because why would you go there unless you have your private jet? Yeah, well, exactly. Why would you go there if you weren't going to use it? Well, there is a reason to go and learn a little bit about, as you said, the Museum of Flight is right there. and But Boeing Field itself has things to look at if you want to take in something interesting that you haven't seen before. And with the, the 30,000 rulers, they're not end to end. 
obviously. They're, this is not going 30,000 feet up <laughs> through the ceiling. They're, they're laid side by side. Yeah, in, it, they're kind of in an arrow design right. um, up through the right. up through the entryway. So thicker at the bottom and yeah, you know, yeah. less at the top, but right. but yes, all thirty thousand are there together. And I thought that yeah. was a nice photograph in yeah. your book of, of that. And I think at the beginning his idea was that they would give away the extras, but I don't think he had very many to give away at the end of that. Oh, interesting. But yeah, it's easy to miss. If you just walk in and go to the front desk, you could totally miss it. So I try to encourage people to look up and look down at the floor. I think um, Boeing and SeaTac and airplanes are just right there synonymous with the word Seattle. I mean, people people think of Seattle as as the you know place for planes, maybe more than any other city in the United States, and and yeah. yet it happened to be the first place where Model T Fords were being built outside of Detroit. And that was um, number 34 in your book, a former Ford factory. I was fascinated by the fact that the first cars on the West Coast were in Seattle. Yeah, this was something I had to learn. There's a building. um, It's kind of at this very busy intersection where you come off Interstate 5 um, on Lake Union. And today, I can't remember what it was before, but today it's a storage building so people rent little storage units there it's very busy and you go right by it but it turns out that it was a, f- a factory for making ford cars and when i first heard about it, i thought no that's wrong but it's actually true so um and, and then there's a there's a connection so in 1909 the seattle hosted its first world's fair the alaska pacific um yukon exposition and there was a there was a cross country race. Remember, in 1909, roads were not great and cars were not so popular. But there was a cross country race um, to go from the East Coast to Seattle. And the winner, the first winner, was a Model T Ford that arrived first. But then it got disqualified. There's some there was some hanky panky with how they got here. Um, but then Ford didn't like um, didn't like wasn't mad at the city, and he needed a West Coast place to to build cars and Seattle had a train uh, a train depot it was the end of the the train ride so he had he shipped parts from Michigan to Seattle to be so they could start producing cars in Seattle so there was this big building and we think of a factory as kind of a big long building but what he did because he was pretty smart about this he had the the cars the base of the cars would start at the top and then the production line would wend its way down to the first floor and they would add parts to it as it went. And then at the at the first floor, um, Model T's would come out the front door. So it was pretty creative and it was like the late, um, uh, let me get my date right, but it was like the right around, it started in the, uh, around the depression. And then he, they built so many, it was so popular. He got another building, a bigger building that is kind of more traditionally laid out long wise but then he had to close that because people couldn't afford cars kind of in 1932 so they both stopped making them but i love that they made cars there and um right across maybe three blocks on the other side of lake union there was a very popular um ford um 
where you could buy cars, Ford cars. And that building is still there. It was a very ornate place where you could buy Model Ts and uh, for until I think the early 80s, you could buy Fords over there. Hmm. So. Well, you went to the World's Fair, Gary, but I don't think it was 1909. <laughs> as, no. as a matter of fact, <laughs> point of order here, I never went to the World's Fair. <laughs> but you believe that I went to the World's Fair because when I first moved there, fresh with enthusiasm, hey, I'm in the PNW and not just the PNW anywhere. I'm in Seattle. I would go to well, particularly at Pike's, uh, Pike Place, you could go and go into the marketplace there. I mean, that's that's a whole carnival unto itself there. And I was able to buy souvenirs, authentic souvenirs. Ah, okay. And when I bought those things, I had a tidy collection going. I just thought that was terrific. The glass, the pins, the dish, etc. And I can recall when I was a little parochial school kid back in 1962, I thought, oh, if my parents would only take me there. We would, I grew up in Southern California, so to us, going far was San Francisco. Yosemite saw us a few times. That was great. And Seattle just remained this distant dream. But I thought, man, to be able to go up there, and they have this needle there. It's like my mom said it looked like a spindle there, and you could go up in it, and, and you can eat in a restaurant, and it spins around. Only I thought it was going to go fast like a merry-go-round. How would you keep you played on the table? <laughs> <laughs> there, but all of that that wonder, there are echoes of it, I trust, Harriet, but I know that the Space Needle itself has gone through various iterations and it's still glorious, but it's not anywhere near the place or the the kind of place as an experience as it was back in 1962. Well, some people say it's a little better because they've taken out that um, rotating restaurant. And now it's a rotating level with a glass floor. Uh, it's got a very nice cocktail bar there on that level, but everyone can go in there and lie down on the glass floor as it turns around. So it's a little more, if, you're, if you can afford the entry fee to the space, it's a little pricey now, but um, everyone could get to that floor. But so Seattle had 1909 World's Fair, 1974, right? World's Fair. Was it 70? Yeah. No, and now. Six, 60 something. I know they had one in Expo in Spokane. Oh. And then Spokane is about to have its 50th anniversary. Um, oh, okay. Of, they held a World's Fair. And uh, I was just there and they're they're getting ready to, to really do it up. And they reminded me that Nixon opened that fair. And um, the person who I was talking to said, but he wasn't there to, he wasn't still in office to come close the fair. So. In Spokane, I trust it wouldn't have mattered because, you know, Spokane politics and Seattle politics are the twain that shall never meet. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but they're very excited. And just like Seattle, the the core of the fair is now a wonderful park in the middle of the city, and they really do a good job of it. So um, I remember nice. walking through Fun Forest, as it was called, the carnival-style amusement park rides. It was fun. What was the original name of that section of the fair? Mm, I don't da, know. Da, da, not the fun forest? Da, da. Not the fun the forest. It, it was the gateway. Gateway. Yes. <laughs> They're so up. Uh, I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, they could rename it that. Go back to the original. It's fine by me. Not inappropriately. The book is called 111 <laughs> Places in Seattle That You Must Not Miss. The author is Harriet Vasquez. She is our honored guest of the hour. Always fun to talk to Harriet. We have more places to discuss 
within and around the Emerald City on the other side of a short break. We are Manson Mitchell. Thanks for tuning in. We will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Tory Ryder. From politics to pop culture, Tory serves up a potpourri of current events in her own inimitable style. On Saturday, Carl Petrie returns with fascinating stories of his retrocognition, the ability to see people and places from another time period in phenomenal detail. Bringing you Mastery of Mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Some people know a good thing when they hear it. Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. We are talking with Harriet Baskus, author of 111 Places in Seattle That You Must Not Miss. Fascinating places, all 111 of them. Harriet, if people would like to either get your book or find out about your first book, Stuck at the Airport, or anything else about what what it is that you're doing, where is the best place for them to begin that journey? Well, Stuck at the Airport's way out of print. I came out um, right around 2001. Um, But all my other books, especially 111 Places in Seattle that you must not miss, um, local bookstores have it. And we always like to promote our local independent bookstores. And of course, online, you can get it before you arrive in Seattle if you come here um, or if you want to send it to people. A lot of people have told me that, especially now that summer's coming and guests are coming, they're going to put this book in the guest room so people, they don't have to take them to all the regular places that everybody goes so they can pick out the places, um, some unusual places. So it's a nice gift book. Um, So online. Do you have a website? um, I don't have a website for 111 places, but they have a there if you okay. um, search. Um, but I do have an Instagram site for 111 Places Seattle, where I put a lot of photos of things around town. So, Excellent. And then on my personal site is stuckattheairport.com, where, where I put all my travels, not just airports, 
as my husband reminds me, most people leave the airport when they go to a city. So I write about other places. <laughs> very good. Very good. We were talking about um, interesting places to see. And we were, you mentioned that the Space Needle is um, got a, a glass floor. It's a little pricey. But one of the places in your book that might be a little less pricey, but every bit as much of a, a good place to see is number 86 called Skyview Observatory. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, and I just, I don't want to um, speak bad Badly. about the space. <laughs> <Badly>. Right. <laughs> Poorly. Or, but I just, um, it just, it is a little expensive. Lines are long when the summer starts. Um, but I want to remind people that I, I think if you buy a ticket, in, that you can use it for the day and the night. So it's nice to go back at the end of the day when maybe you've had a long day of touring and see the city at night so that you do get some value at it, extra value from it. Um, and oh, no other idea. place has a glass floor. Right, okay. So the right. Skyview Observatory, if you want to um, not stand online a long time and you want to be looked down on the Space Needle, the Skyview Observatory is a good alternative that a lot of locals send people to or bring people to. So it's on the 73rd floor of the 76-story Columbia Center office tower downtown. Um, and it's a like an almost 360-degree um, view of the city and the mountains and the sound. And it does look down on the Space Needle. So you can you really get a great view from there. And there's a lot of information about what you're seeing. And of course, the elevator ride is very exciting because you're going up 73 floors. So that's a really good alternative um, to to seeing the city. A lot of people, I know I do, when I go to a new city, some people take like one of those uh, hop on, hop off buses. I always like going to an observatory to get my bearings looking down on the city. So I really like that spot there. And they also have, I think, snacks there too that are probably, again, not as expensive as the expensive cocktail bar at the Space Needle. And and as we're talking about heights, where else is there? Number uh, seven. Yes, there's also the Smith Tower, um, which is not as tall. And when it opened on July 4th, 1914, it was the tallest uh, skyscraper, which was a new word, west, um, west of Ohio. You know, they always kind of had to make these claims. So it was west of Ohio. I often say west of the Mississippi but this was even bigger, even better. So it was um, Seattle's first skyscraper. It was built by Elsie Smith, um, who was an industrialist, but um, he was the Smith of Smith Corona typewriters. Oh. Um, and he also made some money from um, firearms, but not Smith, not Smith Wesson, different um, firearms that he had. So he wanted to build a 14-story building but his son had like bigger dreams. So he convinced them to build a bigger building. And so they, they built a building that was advertised as 42 stories, um, but it actually came in at like 38 stories. And the cool thing about this building is kind of got a, a pinnacle top, a pointy top. And there's the very top floor is one apartment. So which is really cool. But below that apartment is an observatory or an observation deck and What's nice about it, it's got an open air, like a caged open air walkway around it. So you can go up to the top of the Smith Tower in these very ornate Otis elevators that used to have operators until really not too long ago. 
and um, you can walk around outside and inside it's like they call it the Chinese room. So there's a lot of like um, carved wood and they've also got kind of a snack bar, speakeasy style bar in the evening up there. So that's another great destination. And there, that's another one where when you purchase your ticket, you can come back later in the day. So those are, again, as, as you're touring around, if you buy that ticket, it's, if nothing else, a nice place to go rest in the middle of the day. So I like that one. I haven't been to Smith Tower. Have you, Gary? Not within it. No, it's architecturally impressive. It's a landmark. Yeah, it's, like, it's like terracotta. It's terracotta. It's got, again, because it was made so early, it had those very wonderful um, like marble that they brought in from Alaska. And when it opened, it was a really cool building. It was very modern, not just big, but modern. They had, um, I mentioned those elevators, but the offices were wired um, because they were, you could plug in a telephone. Again, remember this was um, 1914. So they were wired for telephones. And they also had um, plugins for a central vacuum system, very modern at the time. So that would have been very modern. Yes. I, I remember in Colorado going to the Molly Brown house, which was like the first all electric house in the United States. And the wiring yeah. was not in the walls. The wiring was <laughs> in the room. Really? So, so you you <laughs> looked at all the, all the electrical wiring. It wasn't hidden. And I thought That's that right. was pretty fast. <laughs> well, sure. If you're going to buy that, invest in it. You want to show it off. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> Let's have some fun here. If somebody wants to go to someplace really fun, tell us about the Pinball Museum, number 73. Yes. So, um, I grew up really loving pinball. So I really, I love this place. We um, we go on dates there. So there is this couple, the story is there's this couple and they wanted a pinball machine and they got one and they kept it in their garage and they really liked it. And then um, they got a couple of others, kind of vintage ones. And then I guess it kind of got out of hand and now they've got like 50 or 60 pinball machines um, and they have them from all through history, from the very early days to the to the most recent. And, and if you have played pinball ever, you know that it's the style has really changed over time from, from very basic mechanical machines to high tech electronic ones. So they they decided to put their collection in a museum but it's a museum that's you can play and that's the best thing. So you pay one admission. It's not very much. And you can play all day. You could stay there all day and you can play machines from the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, all up until now. And um, I've been there and there have been like families and they they choose either a section or a familiar one or they go. They learn the history as they go through them, because on on above each machine is the history of that machine. They've researched who made it, how many of those machines were made, um, of course, when it was played, and they keep them all in tip-top shape so you can play them all the time. So I really love it. It's kind of, a, it's two stories of pinball machines and it's just really fun. So I just love it. And it's in the uh, Pioneer Square neighborhood. I have a, a pinball machine story and yes. that is that my my dad was a state farm insurance agent in the city of Chicago for almost 40 years. It was a very long career for him. He had a storefront at a, a 
very busy intersection in the city. And he had quite a few people working for him because he was that busy. He rented, he never owned the building. He rented the front part of a building and the entire back end was storage for pinball machines. And the machines would go in and out depending on who was renting them at the time. And he had nothing to do with that. There was a big you know, door in the back that all the machines went in and out of. But when I went to visit him in his office, he would say, should we plug in one of the machines? Because they were all unplugged. Right. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he'd plug in a machine and I could play pinball for free all day That's long. That's great. That's great. It's really fun. I, pinball has kind of come back a little bit. Um, some of the ice cream parlors around here and a lot of the bars, kind of the very hip bars have at least four or five. And there's one or two bars that have like, 15 or 20 pinball machines. I guess it's a way, I mean, they don't cost a quarter anymore for five balls. It's more like 75 cents for three balls, right? But um, I think it's a good moneymaker for for um, bars and restaurants now. I mean, not restaurants, but ice cream parlors. Still relatively cheap entertainment. True. If you don't, if you don't um, tilt if you, or If you win. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. How long can you play? <laughs> you know, they were doing something in Belltown. I'm curious about this just as a neighborhood phenomenon. There, I know there was a controversy, and I'm going back years there. I, I hope they resolved it to everybody's satisfaction. But in Belltown, the bars tended to empty out late at night, but they emptied out all at the same time. And that began to be, shall we say, a public nuisance. And I don't know if that was ever resolved by the powers that be. Um, I don't know if they've changed that. It. It's funny. I know that in some cities they've changed the hours, you know, open all night kind of thing. But I do know um, this was something in my neighborhood in Ballard um, in the summer when we kept the windows open. Of course, we would we would hear when the bars let out because you would hear at two in the morning or two fifteen. And when the pandemic happened, that noise went away, which was nice for a little bit. But then we kind of missed it. So when it came back. It's like, oh, we, the bars are open. We actually appreciate that much more now. So I, I think that maybe that law is still 2 a.m. It's like juggling. You're trying to, <laughs> you know, it's tough to make everybody happy, but you certainly aim to make everybody safe. Yes. Yes. So I'm going to look that up. I think we've got two things to look up. Elvis's car. And when do the bars close? You can tell I don't go to the bars till 2 in the morning. So I'll look those <laughs> up. <laughs> Well, we talked about pinballs that were fun, and we have time for another fun thing. And that's number 109, Woody Guthrie's Legacy. Gary and I did go to the Experience Music Project, strange-looking building, before it was redone, renovated, or whatever it was they did to it. And now it's something else, and right. it has all these guitars there. So say a little bit about Woody Guthrie's guitar. Okay, so that uh, the Experience Music Project Museum was is uh, is now rebranded as MoPop, the Museum of Pop Culture. So um, it started as a it's on the Seattle Center Fairground, what used to be the uh, the World's Fair Fairgrounds. Now it's Seattle Center, and it is a building uh, designed by Frank Gehry. Looks like a people call it a big blob, but he I think he said it would looks like if you dropped a guitar, that's what you might get. So it's kind of an interesting space. So it's now um, half music and, and half pop culture exhibits and science fiction. 
But one of my favorite exhibits that's still there, it's gotten smaller over the years, is a room of famous guitars and important guitars that kind of tell the story from the first electric guitar till now um, and important guitars. So one of the guitars they have in there is Woody Guthrie's, probably the first guitar on which he etched the words, this guitar kills fascists. That's what kind of he was known for. And he, over the course of his um, life and his career, he had several guitars where he had etched that into. And at first it was an anti-Nazi wording, but over the years that um, phrase is useful for lots of, lots of things. Um, And so they believe this is, this is a, uh, let me get the for guitar fans. Um, So um, this is a 1936 Martin guitar and very faintly on the back of it, you can see this guitar um, kills fascists. And it's so faint. They believe it's the first guitar he ever etched this on. And it's very faint. But the great thing about the way they exhibit guitars is that it's right up against the glass. So you can get really close and see it. So they made it. And and I just went there um, a couple of weeks ago and I thought, well, certainly there's a sign there. We had, I, I knew all about this. I had talked with the curator about it. He was so proud of it. But I stood there and there was not a little, you had to really look in the notes to see that you should look for this etching. So that's why I kind of make a big deal of it in the book. And I stood right next to this man who was like looking closely and he couldn't find it. And I said, and I pointed it out to him and then he looked it up on the internet and was um, was very excited to see that guitar. So there's lots of other kind of specialty guitars in that uh, museum and a room where you can go and play instruments, not rare guitars, but electric guitars. That particular guitar, if it is possible to replicate it, I would like to smuggle a quantity of them into Florida, where we reside. (laughs) But that's a story for another day. Yes. Anyway, I was just going to say, Woody Guthrie has a um, connection to the the Northwest because the Bonneville Power Association um, or administration hired him at one point to write songs about the Bonneville Power um, dam. And so um, that's where um, the state um, anthem comes from. So roll, roll on Columbia was one of the 26 songs that Woody Guthrie wrote on commission for the for the state. And he was great for embodying the soul of the working men and women. He was yes. their voice, certainly yes. one of the prominent ones. I wanted to ask you, because it just sounds like a lot of fun. It's so aspirational. What about those it's on Capitol Hill and it's a wishing tree. Is that inside a building or outside? I've never been, but I'd love to go there. I got yes. some wishes. So wishing trees seem to be um, kind of a global thing. You'll see them in other cities and in other countries. And there's a woman on Capitol Hill who had a big, beautiful tree in her backyard. And I think she had seen this type of uh, tradition in other cities. And so she set up a little table below her tree and said, um, put your wish here and um, we'll hang it on the tree. So um, people can leave wishes on little cards. And then at first she said she just started hanging them on the tree, but then it rained a lot. So all the wishes got kind of washed away. So still you put your wish on a little card, you put it in a canister and then she'll take them in and she has a laminator and then she'll laminate your wish and hang it off of not the tree anymore because there's so many, 
but her husband made her like a a wire um, kind of a, a wire holder, which has like thousands of wishes on it now with little ribbons right below the tree. So it's a wishing tree and you can go up and read other people's wishes and leave yours there and you'll, you'll come back in a day or two and your wishes hung up there. And they're very sweet. I've seen, um, you know, again, I went up there during the pandemic when I was writing the book. And so there were messages about, I hope everyone's okay, or I hope so-and-so really loves me, or I hope that my mother um, comes and visits, just really sweet things. And then, of course, you know, love, peace for the whole world. But it's a really wonderful thing. And it's very, um, it's kind of magical in a neighborhood with big houses, big kind of fancy private houses off the street. This is a very welcoming thing right on the sidewalk that you can go up and participate in. So I really love that. So do I. I just love the concept. Yes. And that she keeps it up. I mean, that's a big commitment to do that for other people. Yes, that is. It is a nice service. We're down to a couple of minutes here. This time has flown by. Is there a, a local urban waterfall one might visit in Seattle, Harriet? Well, um, down again in Pioneer Square, there's the UPS waterfall. Is that what you're thinking of? It is indeed. Um, okay. So um, UPS, some people might not know, or uh, I didn't know. UPS was invented, founded um, in Seattle um, and started out as a messenger service. Um, two friends started like hiring other friends to send messages around town. And then they just delivered packages. And then they bought their first Model T truck and uh, delivered packages. And that became United Parcel Service, which is no longer based in Seattle. But there's a little park um, right in Piner Square. It's um, locked up at night. And it's just this, it's got a waterfall in there, little chairs where you can sit, lots of lovely um, trees and, and bushes that are cared for. And it's an, literally an urban oasis um, in the middle of um, a pretty tough neighborhood sometimes. So it's very nice. That's great. Well, we covered quite a few. We still have more out of the 111 places in Seattle that you must not miss. That will necessitate another visit from yes, Harriet Baskins. will. Great, great. We're going to do this again, and we're going to talk about all the really fun places. I hope you got some idea today of something that you didn't know about, something you might be interested in seeing on the Memorial uh, weekend and um, or sometime this summer. We hope you enjoy your Memorial Day weekend in traditional ways, and in ways, hopefully, that are meaningful for you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you, Harriet Baskett. Great to see you and talk to you again. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And thank you, Nathan Miller. Great producer. Always a pleasure. All right. All right. Stay Join tuned. Join us next weekend. That's right. We'll be back. In the meantime, stay tuned whenever possible to AM 1150 KKNW in Seattle.